0: Hello everyone, I am Mirta Hurtado-Rivas, no VIPs or rock stars, just simple people sharing their life stories to trigger discussions around important topics, or simply to inspire us to embrace challenges ourselves. Welcome to LeaderChink. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of LeaderChink. Our guest today is Dean Peltier, founder at Peltier Law LLC. Hi, Dean, how are you?
1: Hi, Mirtha, how are you? I'm fine, and thank you for having me today.
0: It's my pleasure. So, Dean, let's dive into it. I have a couple of questions for you. The first one is, what did you dream of becoming as a child?
1: I think the first thing, like a lot of uh, Americans, is you think about becoming a professional athlete. Uh, And then beyond that, it was never anything other than focus on something technical and to pursue an education, do the best you could, and to find what really interested and motivated me. So there wasn't a particular career, per se, as much as it was to uh, go to college and find something that I was passionate about and I originally pursued and did pursue and obtained a degree in engineering Uh, and excuse me originally thought I might go to medical school but decided to switch gears and focus on a career in law.
0: Okay, interesting. Do you think there was anything during your childhood or in your education that actually kind of you know drove you towards engineering or towards the technical side of things?
1: I think a lot of it, again, was driven by sports because of the data and the statistics, even though back when I grew up, and I'll be honest, I was born in 1969. So when I grew up in the 80s and was playing sports uh, as a youth and through high school, junior high school and high school, there was always attention paid to statistics and data and numbers. And so math was always a subject that I liked. It was objective. It was empirical. It was rational. And uh, I also am one of seven kids. I'm the youngest of seven kids. And my parents uh, did a wonderful job in, in impressing upon us the value of education Uh, my dad never graduated from high school, uh, but my mom was a teacher, and uh, when my sister, my twin sister and I were in grammar school, my mom went back to school to become certified as a teacher and to get her master's degree, and so she was a teacher, so she, uh, I suppose, just from that example, uh, taught us the value of an education, but they passed on that work ethic and the value of education to all of my older siblings so we had the benefit my young my twin sister and I had the benefit of having almost surrogate parents five older siblings and my oldest brother uh, who is 12 years older than I am was studying engineering in college when I was in first grade and so I think that was probably the first opportunity I had to think about engineering and problem solving in a technical degree as something that uh, existed. But as I say, when you're that young, you really, I don't think that registers. But if I look back on it now and look back at the impact that sports had, and the impact that the data and numbers had uh, in sports, and I would always read Sports pages, the newspaper again, dating myself uh, and look at what teams were doing athletes were doing and and that that measurement that that data that empirical approach, I think laid the foundation and then, as I say, as you grow older and then I see my older uh, my oldest brother uh, obtain his engineering degree and then work as an engineer, I think what he was doing became more impactful to me as I got older and I appreciated what he was doing. Uh, But I think it's a combination of of all those factors, the parents' emphasis on education, the influence of sports and siblings' uh, pursuits.
0: Thank you. Um, You have now spoken about sports a couple of times and I'm curious to know if you believe that some of the values that, um, you know, are kind of, that you get because you exercise, because you want to become an athlete, if some of that somehow has also had an impact on your professional development, is there anything that you draw from, you know, your earlier sports practice to your professional development today or even during your first years in your career?
1: Absolutely, Uh, a number of things. First, failure. Uh, sports is humbling, and you have to learn to deal with failure uh, in sports and and get up for the next at bat or get up from the next for the next play, whether it's baseball or football or basketball, uh, which are the sports I focused on and the other aspect of sports that is is uh, something that is carried through uh, to my career is the teamwork. Uh, I didn't play individual sports, which are, is a very, uh, challenging field. I have the uh, utmost respect for people that engage in those types of individual activities because they are truly, each of those individuals is truly out on an Island by himself or herself. Uh, but teamwork is something that drew me to the litigation and the trial work because, uh, we often see in this profession, a lot of individuals that uh, are uh, lauded or recognized as being uh, great litigators or trial attorneys. But anybody that knows anything about that process knows that those people are truly uh, only as good as the people around them. And it does take a team uh, in order for someone to excel and look good. uh, You need other people around you that are complementary that are willing to do uh, their part. And so the teamwork element is huge. And the other aspect of sports on top of the ability to deal with failure, and that's not a bad thing to fail. You just have to deal with it properly uh, and and learn from it and hopefully not make the same mistake twice. Uh, And then the teamwork component. And then the other aspect is preparation. Uh, there's no such thing as an off season in in sports. there's no such thing as an off season in law. You may be going uh, you may be at white heat for three months, six months, nine months as you ramp up for trial. Uh, and it may just be crazy difficult when that's over you do to some extent need to take a break. There's no question about that, but you're then going to be charged with getting up to speed and being prepared for the next opportunity and the next endeavor. And the better prepared you are, uh, the more likely you are going to be able to deal with the, the unexpected or minimize the surprises or the unexpected. Those things are always going to come up, uh, I, again, I, I think about some of the people in our profession that talk about how they uh, have have always been successful or never lost a case, and um, which is just uh, ridiculous because that either means you've settled everything or you've never had a difficult case, uh, and you truly uh, are, are never going to be in a situation where everything goes according to plan. But if you are prepared and you've thought things out and you've anticipated some of the things that might happen. You're going to be able to avoid problems or minimize the problems or the distractions. So those are the big things, failure, teamwork, and preparation that really come through.
0: It seems like I should have started doing sports a bit earlier. Maybe that's why I only learned how to deal with failure better um, years ago. Uh, But anyhow, I think it's very interesting. And when you mention failure, It just um, starts, you know, ringing a bell in my head. And I'm wondering, um, has this aspect also helped you to deal better with challenges in your professional career? And if so, is there any challenge that you have overcome that you would like to share with us?
1: Professionally or just in general in terms of the challenges?
0: It can be whatever.
1: Okay. I'll... I'll, uh, I'll share a story which is, is inter- interesting because it was a, a, an episode of failure in sports. And I think I can tie that into, uh, if not failure, then perceived failure professionally. Uh, in high school, playing baseball, I went through a stretch. I was a catcher where I could not throw the ball back to the mound. It basically, long story short, it's a form of OCD. You're looking to make that perfect throw back to the pitcher. And professional players have gone through it. Steve Sachs, Mackie Sasser. These are names of athletes in the United States that have uh, Dale Murphy. Uh, These are uh, players that have gone through it, and it's called the Yips where you're so intent on trying to make a perfect throw and some golfers go through this when they're trying to putt that they pull every putt. I went through that and it just became a situation where it was overthinking and it was trying to be perfect. And the that's the failure when you allow uh, perfect to get in the way of good or good enough and professionally, there have been instances there have been cases uh that i've been involved with uh some high profile some lower profile where we've taken we've made strategic decisions and have taken uh criticism of course there are all kinds of platforms these days for lawyers to comment on cases that i'll say it they don't know anything about they comment on the written opinion which courts do their best, but that doesn't always capture the essence of what transpired either at the trial, the hearing, or in the briefing. And what you have to learn, I think, is that though some people will criticize your work, you have to have a, you have to have confidence that you've done your best. You have to have a client that is satisfied, and the client being satisfied is, is the most important. And you have to be able to block out that accusation or that perception of failure that, oh, I would have done this differently or how could they not have made this argument or why did they do this or why did they do that? I'd like to think that just about anything I do, I try to have a reason for, a legitimate reason for and a justification for. And I do think in this profession, you need to have thick skin because it's very competitive. And there's always other lawyers that are looking to try to capture business and opportunity and make a name for himself or herself uh, by assessing what somebody else did, when really they don't have the first idea or don't have any personal knowledge that would that would uh, warrant that kind of that kind of criticism. I, I believe this is a profession, and, and and it's a tough profession, and I always try to. Uh, withhold any sort of uh, judgment or assessment, Uh, and and it's always uh, an interesting dynamic that we see these days where people like to, uh, as I say, uh, portray something as a failure or shortcoming. Uh, And I'm sure there are, and I know there are instances where we have uh, had trials that have not Uh, or hearings that have not gone as well as we would have liked. And it's because things happen. Uh, What a lot of people don't understand is that sometimes judges make bad rulings. Sometimes judges make inconsistent rulings. And you're left up there at the podium where part of your case, and this is a true story, where a judge may change his claim construction right there, on a dime, the claim construction that's existed for six months and at trial, he looks and asks, is that what I said? And he changes what he said. And so your failure or perceived failure is that you don't have the right questions to ask or you didn't have the right case or you didn't have the right preparation, but you're left to deal with an imperfect system. And I'm not, I'm not faulting the judge, uh, I think we all would like to look back on things we've done six months ago, and, and if we had that chance, we'd probably all say, I'll do this a little differently, or I'll make this decision instead of that decision. But those things happen, and you deal with them, and you move on. Uh, though I will say that, again, in this particular instance, when that judge made that ruling, um, I think I sweat through my T-shirt, my shirt, my suit coat, my suit pants, everything. <laughs> the the air the air conditioning in the courtroom was not on high enough.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. And um, when I think about sports, and you now mentioned a judge, and you mentioned your mother before as kind of an example, a role model to follow. Um, It somehow just pushes me to the next question, which is about, you know, did you come across good leaders, good coaches, um, you know, during your personal and professional development? And if so, can you help us understand what for you is a good leader or a good coach?
1: Yes. Thankfully, I did have some fantastic uh, coaches and, I'll start in somewhat chronological order and give you a, a flavor of just some of the things that resonated with me and, and what I think it makes a good coach from there. Uh, adapting, of course, to contemporary norms which have changed. Uh, there was one coach in Little League Baseball when I was 10 or 11 years old that in order to uh, dissipate fear from getting hit by pitches, he would throw pretty hard and basically want us to stay in there and get hit by the pitch, by the ball, just to teach us that it was not going to kill you, you were going to be able to survive, and here is the way to turn your body to avoid getting hit in the face. I look back on that now and say, he couldn't do that today, (laughs) but... (laughs) <laughs> it, did, it did It did. teach you that even though it was going to sting, you were going to be okay. So it did actually serve its purpose. It probably needs to be repurposed or, or restructured. Uh, but that was one example. Another example of a coach that I had, and to his credit, this was a junior high school basketball coach. He, back in 1982, 83 and this was very different back then had a woman as an assistant coach. So we had a female assistant coach. Now, I I think I mentioned earlier, I had, I have a twin sister and she was a very good athlete as well. So early on, I had an appreciation for somebody who's different from you uh, also can play. And she played little league baseball or started to, and then she went off and did her own thing uh, later on in, in grammar school, junior high school and high school. But again, being introduced to a female coach in junior high school, I think, was uh, noteworthy and and I think an important uh, step for our coach at the time to include this woman as a coach. She was a very good high school basketball player. And then in in high school, I think that the uh, coaches that I had that left the the greatest uh, mark were those who would push you, challenge you, uh, very much in your uh, in your face, so to speak. Again, this is different now these days. I don't think that that type of uh, demeanor would last. I th- I think it still does take place, but I think it's a little different these days. But my point is, is that it was at the time in the 80s, the 1980s. This was all a motivating tactic to push you to the point of exhaustion to push you to the point of how far can you go without a drink of water to push you to the point of uh, double or triple session practices so you 'd go away for a week for camp and you 'd be practicing three times a day, an hour and a half, two hours a time in august sun. Uh, these guys didn't make any money. So this is getting to your point. They did it because they loved the game and they loved being around kids and they loved motivating kids. And I look back on those lessons now and those coaches' efforts, and I don't look back on them with disdain or with any sort of negativity. I realize, again, that the methods would have to be changed and updated. But as far as teaching you that not everything is going to be easy – you're going to have to deal with some physical and mental discomfort or pain. Today, people talk about being uncomfortable or being put asked an awkward question. I can tell you that there's a, in my viewpoint, and this fast forward comes to more involvement with yoga and yoga sculpt, classes that meld the physical and the mental, it is such a fine line between mental in physical pain or discomfort or awkwardness. And if you can deal with one, I think you can deal or learn to deal with the other. So those coaches all left tremendous impacts through their, their methods. I won't name any of them because I don't want to put any of them on the spot. As far as leadership today... And this is a, an amalgamation of both the coaches as well as the lawyers that I've worked with that have truly uh, been tremendous in, in their coaching and in their mentoring. I think it's about empowerment. And I think it's about encar- encouragement and empowerment. And if you empower and encourage and give someone younger a plan, a path, Uh, a method of training to follow and then allow them to make decisions and learn from it and feel the, the uh, adrenaline rush from success and also feel some of the uh, disappointment and failure. I think you're doing them a favor as a leader on top of empowering and allowing those team members and those younger folks or those players to, go out there and perform, a great coach, a great leader, a great mentor, a great lawyer has been around the block enough that no matter what that younger person does, that older person, that mentor, that more experienced or seasoned person or coach can fix it. And that was always the most – the the best boost of confidence – to know that somebody trusted you enough to get up there and do it, to take a witness for the first time at a trial. And at the same time, if there was something that you were going to, that you might've missed when you went back and whispered to him or her, is there anything else? He or she would already have a couple of post-it notes, again, I'm dating myself, a couple of post-it notes with a few questions. And this may happen also at a deposition to just loop back And ask these questions. And you have to be open to it as well. That's the other thing I think that's a little different. And the dynamic has shifted perhaps a bit. Younger folks, in my opinion, and I'm probably no different than any older generation. uh, I think everybody has to be open to that coaching and that suggestion and that uh, post-it note to ask that other question or follow up or uh, think about something else. And uh, so it's that combination of empowerment and then knowing that that person is is good enough at what he or she is doing that she'll be able to make it right or he'll be able to make it right.
0: So you mentioned just a word that to me it kind of brings together a lot of the values that you just mentioned and it's trust. And I think that building up trust you know, between colleagues or between your manager or your leader, and vice versa, is really important. So um, I was wondering, do you think that gender plays a role uh, when it comes to good leadership? What's your point of view on
1: that? I think there are great women leaders. I think there are great male leaders. I think everybody has their own style. And I think it's about meshing with that style. And... Uh, being open to that style, and and great leaders adapt uh, and and utilize the talent that they have at, at I, I'll say at their disposal. And I don't mean to suggest that, that 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 people are commodities or or fungible. People aren't fungible. Everybody's different. And I think that the uh, the great coaches and leaders that I'm aware of and that I've been around are are confident, and it is both female and male. The styles are different, uh, but I, I think it 's more just about the respect that uh, each side brings to the table, both both the leader and the person that is that is being led or that 's being mentored.
0: Thank you. do you think that in general? the gender discussion that we have heard so much about and also um, during the you know, COVID-19 situation, do you think this discussion is outdated or do you believe that we should continue to talk about uh, gender, gender equality, and maybe even about, about the broader topic of diversity?
1: My uh, viewpoint or the, the foundation of any assessment of what others are doing, for, for me, my, my starting point has, has two main components. One is individuality, that everybody is uniquely or individually talented and has unique abilities. And with that comes responsibility and accountability. And the other pillar on top of individuality is meritocracy, and this again harkens back to sports, which I still believe is perhaps the truest or the purest or the best form of meritocracy that we still have. And I I say that because if one looks at rosters of professional and college sports teams, you see the people... that simply deserve to be there based on their ability and their effort. So to, more, to get back to your question, I do think it's a healthy discussion to have. Uh, my concern, hearkening back to, to sports and data and, and my engineering degree and, and being in the intellectual property field, is that I myself respond well to data and looking at what the issue is or the problem is based upon the data, because then one is able to craft a solution. If, for example, we say that something is unfair. Personally, I that resonates with me as a person, I understand what you're saying. You feel as though something isn't you aren't being given the same opportunity as someone else, but that's a difficult problem to remedy without the data to show what's causing this or what is the level of unfairness. And then we get to the question of where, it, what is the target? In other words, is there an end game? Is there a solution? If we define the problem rationally and with data and we can measure where we're going, for example, with with the question of diversity, and suppose someone were to say, well, Let's. I'll take an example just to provide a little context. Let's suppose we were talking about the the NFL, and we look at the number. I'll just break it down by gender and not by race at this point, uh, because it's it's easier uh, for per, just for purposes of discussion. And all of the National Football League coaches or ma- head coaches are males. I don't doubt that a uh, a woman head coach, or there can be and should be a woman head coach or women head coaches, if they're, if they're good enough. Anybody should have the chance to be a head coach. My question would be, would equality in that context be 50-50, or would it be something else? In other words, is it just based down based on the population demographics, or do we also look at, well, how many women actually want this job? To begin with, is it the same number of women that want this job as men, and uh, are we providing opportunities at grassroots level, grassroots uh, levels? And I think that th- that's the way I would approach it, and I, I hope that provides some uh, uh, clarity. That I-, I think we need to define what the problem is, and I, for my speaking only for myself. If I'm armed with data and objective information, again, this goes back to the empowerment point, I can then get on board with the solution, the next step or steps in the solution that's being proposed a lot uh, more quickly and a lot more enthusiastically than if we're just talking about broader issues that I don't deny they exist. Indeed, they do. Uh, but I think it's important to quantify to the best we to the best of our ability what the issue is, uh, and and to to move forward and improve because there's definitely room for improvement.
0: Well, it seems like I have to send a little bit of data your way.
1: <laughs> I will, as always, I will happily I will happily read it, and and digest it and i i you know that or i hope you know that um i I think that's the best way to get buy-in from 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 not only buy-in but real results Um, definitely
0: i couldn't agree more
1: i i think that too many people these days uh uh i i was having discussion about a week or so ago and i i made the comment or observation entirely mine that uh, I don't think I've ever made a really good decision when I've made it out of emotion. Mm-hmm. I think most most of the good decisions I've ever made have been made after sleeping on it, taking a step back, looking at the data, and and, and really getting fully on board because of uh, the just the the empirical correctness. And and again, I'm not suggesting that there's not that morality doesn't play a role. It plays a huge role. It may be, may be the biggest role, morality and, and fairness, huge roles. But I, I think that if we get if we want to solve a problem, I think that uh, we break down a lot of the barriers and the obstacles if we can just make a good case for it. And maybe that's the lawyer in me, but I, I, I honestly believe that that's the case. And if you get true buy-in from people, Uh, I think we avoid having to have the same discussion five years down the road or 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road where we look back and say, gosh, we didn't make as much progress as we had hoped for. And I think if we get the necessary buy in now, uh, I think I think we can look back in five or 10 or 15 years and say, wow, look at the exponential progress we've made.
0: Thank you, Dean. So we're coming Towards the end of our conversation, I have a last question for you. And I wonder if you would be speaking to yourself in your 20s, what advice would you give the younger Dean? (laughs) (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, boy. How much time do you have?
0: No, just very briefly Dean. This is the last question. So just you know, in a nutshell, what do you think you would advise yourself if you could have the chance to talk to yourself in your twenties?
1: Two things. One, listen more. Two, don't worry about it being perfect.
0: Excellent. This is uh, like a, a perfect closing because as you know, leadership is all about listening to others. And I hope that our audience will find inspiration and will think about themselves based on this conversation. So once again, thanks so much for being here today, Dean and talk to you soon.
1: Mirtha, thank you very much for having me. I was uh, humbled to be asked and I, I appreciate it. Have a great day rest of the week and uh, stay safe, be healthy. And I look forward to speaking with you soon.
0: I hope you liked this episode of Leader Ching in English. Don't forget to give us a thumbs up on your respective platform and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon.